Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, this is a good martini, but it's uh, with a grain of caution here. This is from the Associated Press. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam announced Wednesday the withdrawal of an extradition bill that sparked months of demonstrations, bowing to one of the protesters' demands in the hope of ending the increasingly violent unrest. But activists rejected the decision as insufficient and vowed not to yield until the government accepts other demands, including an independent investigation into alleged police brutality against protesters, the unconditional release of those detained, and greater democracy. The extradition bill would have allowed Hong Kong residents to be sent to mainland China for trials. It prompted massive protests since June that disrupted transport and caused the airport to shut down uh, within the past month. So, Jim, this is good. We love freedom. We love people standing up for their freedom. It's not often that the Hong Kong government, which is really marching to the tune of the, the Chinese government here, is actually making a major concession but it's taken them so long to do so that they really can't contain this now, and there's going to need to be a lot more that happens before this gets resolved. But hopefully the huge, peaceful protests keep moving in the right direction here. Yeah. Again, I, I was cautiously optimistic about this, but I don't want to overstate it. wrote a bit about this in the morning jolt today. Greg, this is, you know, picture a burning house or, or you know, because it's Hong Kong, maybe the towering inferno is a better uh, <laughs> visual metaphor here. After pumping gasoline onto this blazing fire for a long time, the managers of Hong Kong, I assumingly with the approval of their authorities in China, have formally withdrawn the bill. They kind of, you know, temporarily withdrawn it earlier. So they've thrown a bucket of water on the towering inferno. That's good. That's a step in the right direction. You've stopped making things worse, uh, but you really have a long way to go. And this might have calmed things down early in the process. Uh, I don't know how many listeners had a chance to catch that footage of the Hong Kong police who up until recently had been considered one of the more professional police organizations in the region, not automatically prone to beating protesters or uh, acting in a brutal or authoritarian manner. Man, that video on the subway, I mean, they're just going in there and, and just beating the heck out of them. It's, it's, you know, reminiscent of the Rodney King video. No sense of differentiating between actual protesters and people who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, beating them with batons. It's ugly. And so it's one of those things where the people of Hong Kong, who previously had a certain level of trust in their police forces uh, to handle things in a professional manner, to recognize they're in a tough spot and their job is to prevent violence and destruction of property and, you know, but uh, there's that trust is just obliterated. Um, that basically push came to shove. And the Hong Kong cops behave like thugs. So, you know, there's obviously there's going to be an investigation of all this sort of thing. But if you're a Hong Kong protester, I don't know if you're ready to pack it up and go home and say, OK, everything's fine now. This has shaken your faith in your the people who are governing you uh, to the core. And you can't go back to that because, first of all, you know, this while it's formally withdrawn, there's no, nothing that says that the you know leadership in Hong Kong couldn't reintroduce this legislation or a version of this re- legislation later on. And then the other thing you kind of wonder about is, look, this is China, arguably one of the most powerful countries in the world, and they have effect de facto complete control over Hong Kong as is. Who's to say they don't start extraditing people without checking with the court system in, in Hong Kong? 
So look, it's good news. It's not something the, the government in China wanted to do. It is indeed a concession. Uh, but Greg, I have a feeling the story of this, this fight between the protesters in Hong Kong and the Chinese government is only in one of its early chapters. Always happy to see freedom get at least a, a win. Uh, not necessarily a full win, but uh, mm. we'll see how We'll it goes take our now. wins against China where we can get them. Yes, exactly. Lately. Yes. As Bears and Jets fans, any win is a good win. <laughs> so uh, we don't take any of them for granted. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And this was all over the Twitter sphere yesterday, and it's another major black eye for political journalism in the United States. This time, Bloomberg take a bow. Uh, Phil Klein over at The Examiner with the story here. And one of the most shameful, egregious media failures of the year, a Trump appointee to the Department of Labor was forced to resign after a Bloomberg reporter started asking officials about a Facebook post spun as anti-Semitic, even though it was clearly a satirical post mocking the alt-right. Earlier on Tuesday morning, Bloomberg reporter Ben Penn proudly tweeted out a scoop about Leif Olson, who recently started as an advisor in the department's wage and hour division. Scoop! Trump Labor Department's new senior advisor, Leif Olson, posted on Facebook that Jewish media, quote-unquote, protect their own. In response to my request for comment on Olson's anti-Semitic post, the U.S. Department of Labor says they've accepted his resignation. But it doesn't stop there. A lot of people blowing back on that, pointing out what really happened here, and Phil Klein has that in the story. In reality, the Facebook post in question was the opposite of anti-Semitic. It was a clearly sarcastic post from 2016 about Paul Ryan crushing alt-right challenger Paul Nealon. If the -the over-the-top language isn't a tip-off, it's a fairly dead giveaway that Olson refers to Ryan having, quote, suffered a massive, historic, emasculating 70-point victory. When one of the commenters suggests Ryan must be a neocon and a Jew, Olson, clearly joking, responded, it must be true because I've never heard the lamestream media report it, and you know they protect their own. People who have known Olson for a long time uh, defended him vociferously on Twitter. He's uh, been uh, an attorney in the marriage debate over the years, and some folks think that might be a factor in him not being very popular in the D.C. media circles. But later on, Mr. Penn himself perhaps uh, gave away the game here. Lost in all this, as he says to all the blowback, is that Olson was part of a team of political appointees tasked with the heavy lift of drafting wage-hour regulations that are high priorities for the Trump White House and the business community. They're now down one advisor. So, Jim, we don't care about the truth. We just want to stop Trump, and hey, we got a scalp today. This is a series of dominoes of bad martinis to mix metaphors uncomfortably, <laughs> um, because it starts with the fact that let's assume Ben Penn is a bad guy. But it's so clear that it's sarcastic that I have a very hard time believing that this was a genuine misconstruing of sarcastic remarks. But even if you were, you know, if you want to if you if you think this is a story, if you think this is something that I know he reached out to the Department of Labor, but I really think you should reach out to the person you're writing about and say, look, there are these posts on your Facebook that read anti-Semitic to me. Do you have a comment? Right. He didn't do that. (laughs) He reached out to the Department of Labor. He did not reach out to Olson himself. My assumption would be Olson would say, dude, what's wrong with you? They're all sarcastic. Read them again. The second thing is that presumably Ben Penn has an editor, right? Everything I put up on National Review, somebody's looking at. Now, I can hear people saying, really? Shouldn't it be better than that? Jim? You know, you, those typos get through? Yeah, occasionally they miss the typos. They're all mine. It's not, you know, but it's one of those things where you, you, somebody at Bloomberg could have said, 
are, wait, are we sure this guy really meant what he said, or this or this isn't sarcasm, right? That you like that they would have like looked at the Facebook posts, they would have seen the other comments. Um, look, now we've seen other people nominated for jobs in this administration, uh, generally not top tier, but you know your undersecretaries and your lower level positions, and uh, you know somebody uh, like Andrew Kaczynski over at CNN or somebody looks into the social media feed. Lo and behold, they said something terribly racist. Lo and behold, they said something very anti-Semitic or just over the top. And the person usually withdraws. So maybe Bloomberg thought, okay, this is another one of those cases. But again, some editor should have looked at that and at some point should have said, hey, you know what this story doesn't have? It doesn't have a story from Olson. Let's hold off, get a comment from Olson. Let's see what his take on this thing is. Didn't do any of that. Story comes out. Everybody who knows Olson says, what are you kidding me? Of course, he was being sarcastic about all this stuff. Um, at this point, it's on Bloomberg law as an institution. Every institution is going to have, is made up of human beings. Human beings are going to make mistakes. You know, this is on Ben Penn, which I, I assume is not an alias. Uh, this is on Ben Penn's editor, but you know what? The institution as a whole could say, you know what? Our guy screwed up. He, he shouldn't have written that. He should have checked with them. It's obvious this stuff is sarcasm. You know, it's understandable sometimes sarcasm gets lost, particularly when it's in the written word or something like that. But we regret this. There's no re- Olsen is not a controversial person. He's not a raving anti-Semite or some lunatic and put the matter to bed. And they did it. And it's one of those things where, like, uh, I don't know if this is like lefties emulating Trump or whether they're just this stubborn as is. They don't want to do that. And their response was, we stand by our reporting. But your reporting was wrong. And, you know, I, I guess they're afraid of embarrassment. They don't want to admit they got the story wrong. Look, they should feel very bad about themselves. They should be ashamed to look in the mirror, but they could still fix it. Ben Penn could theoretically still fix it. Although you talk about his uh, uh, his comments on Twitter, he clearly has, has no regrets, no shame. He did what he was supposed to do, which is get the scalp. When he says they're, they're down a man, like Olsen tore his ACL or something. This is going to feed everybody's, you know, vehement hostility towards the media we talked a couple of podcasts ago about this uh, reported effort on the Trump campaign and allies of Trump to dig into the social media feeds of reporters and try to expose embarrassing information, basically doing what Media Matters tries to do for every other, every every conservative reporter and or any reporter who irks Hillary Clinton back in 2016. <laughs> um, this is why they're doing it, folks. Bloomberg has the simple opportunity. You know what? We were wrong on this. We, we screwed up. It happens. We apologize to Mr. Olson and just move on. But they don't want to do that. The fact that they're digging it in uh, reinforces all of the worst suspicions about how the mainstream media actually operates. Exactly. And it's even more galling when you uh, read deeper into uh, Phil Klein's story and you find out that Leif Olson was uh, living in Texas with his family. They specifically moved here to Washington for this job. So their uh, family life is uh, probably an upheaval. The description you gave there, uh, Jim, almost makes it sound like Ben Penn is the kid in the karate kid who just takes out Daniel LaRusso's knee. Uh, he doesn't get as much attention as Johnny, Johnny Lawrence, because he was the All-Valley Karate Champion two years running, I believe. But that's essentially what happened there, except in The Karate Kid, Daniel LaRusso still came back. And hopefully Lee Folson will certainly have another opportunity uh, to do a yeah. lot of good as a public there's, servant there's, again. Yeah, there's one other thing we should throw out here, which is I don't quite get why the Department of Labor, first of all, I, I, you know, it's entirely possible Olson says you know what, this isn't worth it. And oh, by the way, if you're wondering why we have a hard time finding good people to work in government, stories like this would be a good example. It's bad enough the people who have actual scandals, right? right. It's bad enough the people who have, I don't think you necessarily characterize it as a scandal, but let's say 
they had a messy divorce. Let's say they had a personal bankruptcy earlier in their life. So something that they're not proud of. And, you know, you work for the government, you got to fill out a whole bunch of forms, you got to give out your whole personal histories just so they can be uh, prepared for anything, detect any conflicts of interest or something like that. This is, this is one more reason where you can say something utterly innocuous and somebody who hates you, hates you for the viewpoints you have, will simply find what you have, twist it and misconstrue it to make you sound like a racist and anti-Semite, destroy your reputation and then say, hey, look, I did my job. Um, the, the, so, but the other thing is also the Department of Labor, like I thought the Trump administration was full of these tough guys who didn't care what the media said and who never backed down from a fight and all that kind of stuff. I can kind of understand if Olson's like, to hell with this. I'm going back to private practice. I never want to deal with Washington ever again. But there's a part of me that says, wait, if you really did nothing wrong, you owe it to everybody to stand up for yourself. Olson should be standing up for the right to sarcasm. And the Department of Labor should be saying, no, we don't accept your resignation because you didn't do anything wrong, Mr. Olson. But uh, we're not getting that at all, Greg. Well, that makes me wonder whether it was actually his decision to resign or whether the Department of Labor and the Trump administration in general just didn't want this as a headline for a number of days, as they thought it might be. And so it was a resignation, but it was a, a requested resignation of some hmm. sort. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's it not- looks better for you if you resign than if we fired you, et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini, which also has a lot of bad to it. And this comes to us from Jim Garrity over at National Review, uh, writing about it in the Morning Jolt and elsewhere. And that's that we're getting pretty close to a peace deal, and I'm using quotation marks with my fingers there, with the Taliban in Afghanistan, largely because Trump would love to bring home most, if not all, the troops from Afghanistan before the 2020 election. But of course, negotiating with the Taliban means negotiating with the people that harbored al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in the first place. And so, Jim, you talk about how these negotiations are going on. The Taliban is committing to not engage in acts of terrorism, but is still committing acts of terrorism as the negotiations go on here. So is there any hope that this works? No, look, this this is deeply frustrating because, yes, we'd heard about there was a, as Khalil's, uh I always mangle his name. Zalmay Khalilzad. Thank you, Greg. As that guy <laughs> was doing his press conference earlier in the week, the Taliban blew up uh, a, a bomb. It was a truck bomb outside of a called Green Village. It's not the Green Zone. Um, and people knew. And my point earlier in the week had been: Can you believe these guys? They're blowing up suicide bombers. They're they're you know attempting. They're killing innocent civilians while the press conference about a deal in principle is still going on. They couldn't even wait till the announcements you know was finished. You go a little, you look, dig a little deeper this week. It turns out that, you know, the Green Village, it's not, you know, it, it isn't, you know, it is a compound. It has high walls. It has security. But basically, the people live there. One is that there's a Romanian embassy, or at least there's small, you know, pseudo embassy that's in there. Uh, an international aid organization, people live there, right? So it would be full of Westerners, full of uh, people from all around the world who are trying to help the people of Afghanistan. It is not a military target by any stretch of the imagination. And the Taliban just blew a whole bunch, killed five people, injuries are up to 50, although I think those numbers are starting to climb. I do not see a scenario where we leave Afghanistan and the situation gets better. I know people are tired of being there. I know there's this this phrase, sort of the forever war, right? You know, oh, we're tired. Well, look, if we leave, the Taliban takes over again. If the Taliban takes over again, right now the negotiations are that if we, we're going to leave Af- Afghanistan, Taliban, you just got to promise us you're not going to work with al-Qaeda or other terrorists who want to target Americans again. And we're apparently taking them at their word. 
while they're killing people. They are promising to not support terrorism against Westerners while they're committing acts of terrorism against Westerners. So I guess you know, what, what really galls me is, I think, first of all, I think a full withdrawal from Afghanistan is going to work very badly against us. We saw the same thing in Iraq. Apparently, Mattis' new book talks about this a great deal. That, you know, look, I know we don't like having troops overseas. I know we don't like having troops over in harm's way. But if we leave, it doesn't get any better. And the rise of ISIS is exhibit A, and it's not ancient history. We're talking about 2011, 2012, 2013. The Mattis book talks about this. And he says, everybody knew if we, withdrew, if we had a full withdrawal, uh, that eventually Islamist extremists were going to fill that vacuum. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was going to morph and grow and mutate and turn into something even more dangerous. And Biden told Mattis, don't worry, we'll never have a full withdrawal. A year later, we had a full withdrawal, and the rest is history. My guess is if we go down this path in Afghanistan, you're going to see the exact same thing all over again. So if we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan, we should withdraw from Afghanistan, but we should not go through the charade of saying, oh, well, the Taliban promised they're not going to support international terrorists anymore, so now it's an okay. It's uh, We know exactly who we're dealing with. We know they can't be trusted. And I think we're doing a disservice to our citizens and the world when we act like, oh, no, no, it's okay. We've got to deal with the Taliban in principle. This is going to turn out just fine. We leave. A lot of people are going to die. Happened to Vietnam. Happened in Iraq. Going to happen again. The American public seems hell-bent on this particular course, Greg. And, you know, the consequences are entirely foreseeable. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And this is perhaps the third example of that just in recent memory. If you would like to hear and read Jim Garrity's idea of what the U.S. policy should be in Afghanistan if, in fact, we leave and if, in fact, things go bad there again, check out The Morning Jolt today. I think you'll find it quite interesting. I certainly did. Jim? How's that for a tease? It's a grim note to end our podcast on, Greg. But, uh, you know, I think we'll have something fun tomorrow. We do have something fun tomorrow. If you love the three martini lunch, you love politics, and you love the start of the NFL season, do not miss tomorrow's episode, the Thursday edition of the three martini lunch. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Thursday for the next three martini lunch.